materials and the labor and the expertise of places like Egypt and Haiti. Egypt and Haiti, to name but two examples, did not suddenly enter the flows of capital. They were not simply derivative beneficiaries or victims. Their labor, their materials, and their differentiated class structures were crucial to the accumulation of capital. Now, despite the return to political economy of the last decade, scholars and commentators continue to overlook the contingent and messy history or histories of capitalism. On the one hand, scholarship on North America and Western Europe rehearses a Eurocentric perspective that tells its own histories and calls it global. On the other hand, scholarship that focuses on the so-called non-West tends to emphasize case-specific exceptional histories that do not claim to narrate the global. And here's just a couple of examples of some very recent exciting works. This is probably the most recent about Senegal called Forensics of Capital. Um, and this is a little bit older um, called Stages of Capital. So what I'd like to suggest here is that we find ourselves between a rock and a hard place. The rock is one of Eurocentricism. The hard place is that of exceptionalism. And it is here that the history of Palestine, and in particular the history of economic thought in Palestine, I think has many lessons for us. Indeed, I think the history of Palestine can and must speak back to global history. Resisting the urge of viewing Palestine as entirely exceptional is necessary to harvesting these lessons. This, is, this resistance is a difficult task given the breadth and scope of the Zionist settler colonial enterprise. Indeed, the experience of cumulative and continuous dispossession has determined not simply how we define ourselves, 48ers, West Bankers, Gazans, refugees, diasporic, but more importantly, how we even study our histories. The terms we use and the realities they describe are outcomes, as everyone in this room all too intimately knows, of colonial partitions and divisions. They are outcomes of this map of the incredibly shrinking Palestine. So my story today begins a little bit before this shrinking. Um, my story is about the 1930s and 40s, although partition was well underway in that period. Um, my talk, as Sunny mentioned, uh, draws from my book called Men of Capital, Scarcity, and Economy in Mandate Palestine. Before I begin as a framing, I'd like to suggest that the mandate in Palestine um, was not exceptional simply because of the very faulty ways that people have described it, that is, that the British supported one so-called side over another, that is the Zionist movement over the Palestinian people. The mandate was exceptional because it was the only case in which the Permanent Mandates Commission, that is the commission that was overseeing the territories after the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire. This was the only case in which that commission officially uh, recognized settler colonialism. 
Over the last few decades, scholars have really given us um, and highlighted how Mandate Palestine was a time of intensive literary and cultural production, um, as well as a very active time of women, a women's movement, labor organizing, and populist politics. But for me, what has been very striking is that despite these contributions, Palestinians who were concerned with capital accumulation, investment, and economic growth are erased from the historical record. One of the reasons that they're erased from the historical record has to do with our own understandings of um, what is a good nationalist and what is a good Palestinian. But it also has a corollary in Zionist modernization narratives, which I think are very clearly illustrated in this image, in which we understand, in which the Zionist modernization narrative understands and posits two hermetically sealed, self-enclosed economies opposing one another, a pre-modern Arab agricultural subsistence economy and a modern Jewish industrial sector. So while scholars have gone very far at chipping away this dual society model that underpins this narrative, Palestinian elites continue to appear as if they are a unified entity whose practices are staid and unchanging and easily discernible. And my, one of my main contentions is that this lump is now it's time to actually disaggregate it and better understand these elites. Before I talk a little bit about the, the character of these people that, I, that I've studied, I want to really qualify um, a few of the disparities that the work uh, is based on in, in many ways. Certainly the disparities between urban elites and rural Palestinians were everywhere to be seen during the mandate period. And more certain still, the Zionist enterprise was richer and more equipped than any Palestinian commercial or industrial venture. And here I think it's important to keep in mind that European Jews actually went from generating 50% of Palestine's output in the 1920s to 80% during wartime-induced industrialization in the 1940s. But the corollary of this intensive production was not Palestinian stagnancy. And I think one of the very important things to keep in mind is if you keep comparing Palestinians to Zionists you actually cannot see a Palestinian story. You have to try and change the perspective in order to really get at Palestinian history. And what I'm suggesting is rather than stagnancy, we actually have access to a very exciting and dynamic story um, that has important legacies for the present. In the late Ottoman period, already a nascent commercial class that was separate from the landed elite had begun to take hold in Palestine. There were new opportunities in banks, trade bureaus, shipping companies, and commercial agencies, which was already expanding a very small but important group of shop owners, retailers, and commercial, um, and commercial distributors. By World War I, there's already a diverse range of local industries and this includes flour milling, soap making, uh, metal shops. Between 1918 and 1927, Palestinians and European Jews established about 2,269 commercial and industrial establishments. 60% of these are Palestinian. 
um, also during this period and in particular during World War II in which the British are essentially transforming Palestine into a, a military base um, to, as headquarters for the World War II alongside Egypt, basically you have Arab industrial establishments and their labor force doubling. Also in this period, um, what's very noticeable is that Palestinians held considerable cash in the two Arab banks, which expand faster in the 1940s than any other financial institution at the time in Palestine. And just to give you a sense of this kind of capital accumulation, between 1939 and 1946, the total capital in both of these banks grows 14-fold. So clearly there is a Palestinian capitalist story to tell. So let me now consider one juncture in this story. During the 1930s, <clears throat> Palestinian elites basically uh, put forward a project around an economic nahda. And they did this through various periodicals and on radio programs where they're attempting to really shape economy as a sphere of action and a science of the self. And one of the things that is very important, I think, in this regard is because these Palestinians are shut out of state institutions, they're really forming, um, they're forming the economy as a science of the self, as an ethical project. One such project is um, the hitherto unstudied journal which you see an image of here. Um, this is a really interesting journal which I found with the help of um, our friend and colleague Munir Fakhreddin, who can't be with us um, today, who accidentally ran across this journal in the Hebrew University Library. <clears throat> and this is another story to also talk about, which is the archives for this project and which kinds of um, journeys that I made to, to find these records. Um, this is a very interesting journal. It hits the presses in 1935. Its chief editor was a man that I would wind up spending a great deal of time with, although he's long gone, named uh, Fuad Saba. And he was the first Palestinian licensed accountant under British rule. The journal begins as a bi-monthly, and it continues as a weekly until 1937, at which point the British exile Saba because of his funding of the rebels in the 1936-39 Arab revolt. So what's so interesting about this journal, there's many things that I will tell you about why I think it's interesting. But one of the things that's interesting is that these, a lot of the people in this journal are funding the rebels, but they're not talking about the revolt in any of the pages of the journal. They're also not talking about um, uh, Jewish settlers. So how do you explain this absence? And for me, how I explained it is that these men, like many of the men of, of their time, and some sometimes women, although less so, were really immersed in a very modernist project in which they were attempting to distinguish between the economic and the political. And it was a sort of relentless project to make this division. In fact, they even called themselves, they called this journal, Iqtisadiyat, as the party organ, not of men of politics, but of men of capital, which is what they called themselves, Rijal <clears throat> 
What's interesting about this um, project, about this journal, is that first you would have a number of articles in which they are basically describing the significance of economy and its relationship to social life, its relationship to gender, its relationship to mathematics, its disciplinary location. They're also translating from The Economist in this period, so they're featuring very interesting translations from The Economist in the 1930s. They're themselves as a crossroads for the exchange of information on economy. They're following all of the very important uh, translations that are taking place in Cairo. And they also see themselves as a vehicle for the spread of knowledge production on economy. So what, they, what you have is uh, a subscription base that goes from North Africa all the way to Muscat, Oman, as well as Baghdad. So <clears throat> it's a really uh, a, a kind of subscription base that echoes what I will talk a little bit about, which is a very regional project, uh, a pan-Arab project. So let me just talk very briefly about who these men were. Uh, in the 1920s, uh, Seba established a highly successful team of accountants called Seba and Company. For those of you who um, know about this company, it continues to be a very important multinational corporation. Others that were involved were men like Abdel Hamid Shaman, who founded the Arab Bank in the 1930s. These were the men who would go on to establish corporations in Palestine after World War II, including Middle East Airlines, which was actually a Palestinian venture, Arabia Insurance, which continues to be one of the most important insurance companies in the Arab world. And as Palestine fell, they would rush to guard their wealth. <clears throat> In the 1950s and 1960s, men like Saba, Shoman, Yusuf Baydas, and Hasib al-Sabbagh would lead some of the largest and most successful insurance, engineering, banking, and contracting ventures in the Arab world. And this, for me, was one of the kinds of realizations that really helped me, because throughout most of my project, and until today, people would make the claim that the people that I studied didn't exist. <coughs> But actually, they did exist, and they existed in such ways to, to form and shape a kind of business and economic culture um, throughout the 50s and the 60s. The entry point for me about these uh, men of capital was that they really complicate what I, what I understood as a flattened social topography of Palestinian social life, where we saw the ineffect ineffectual, inefficient, infighting, decadent elites, right, the Ayan, the Husseinis, and the Neshashibis, versus a large, undifferentiated mass of peasantry who were honorable but ignorant, and a small group of workers. Um, so that was a kind of entry point to, to complicate Palestinian social history. As the project shifted and moved, I also understood that what these men help us do is rethink the Nahda. So scholars have rendered the Nahda, which I shorthand as the Arab liberal project, as primarily literary or cultural. But it was, in fact, a diverse archive of thought and experience beginning in the 19th century that could include people like Muhammad Abdu, an, and, 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 uh, an Islamic modernist, to socialist thinkers like Amin al-Rihani. 
Palestine's men of capital teach us, teaches us that the Nahda is also deeply rooted in the principles of financial investment, capital accumulation, and private property. They force us to engage the economic, the role of economic categories in shaping the Nahda. And for me, until this moment, what I find striking and that we very much need in the history of the Arab world more broadly is a history of economic thought. Um, on the pages of Iqtisadiyat, the Palestinian men of capital who took part in this Nahda really proselytized economics. They were almost like missionaries. They proselytized new ways of spending and saving as a, as a kind of code of conduct. And at the heart of what they understood was this economic rebirth or renaissance was the proliferation of new commodities, new opportunities for spending, new needs. And private property and individual freedom were basic tenets for them in this compelling new world that they described full of towering buildings, cinema houses, cafes, and restaurants. These men are hard to understand now because they draw on broad universes of thought. So they drew on everything from Ghazali to Ibn Khaldun to Adam Smith to, to Rousseau to Karl Marx. And they did that to do three main things. First, to shape economics as neutral and scientific. Second, to define class and status in new ways. And third, to safeguard their own power. So this is what's really interesting about these figures, because they're shaping a new kind of understanding about class at the same time that they're really trying to guard their own hegemony. <clears throat> so one of the things, and you can tell from this image that they're trying to do, is really shape national units textually and visually. And in each of these journals that, that, um, that I've read through and translated, you'd see a, a sort of a lead article thinking about economy, various world economic news, and then categories um, and special sections that were national. So you'd have Palestine, Jordan, Egypt, Sudan, the Arabian Peninsula, Syria, Lebanon. And in under each of these categories, under each of these headings, the ed editors would feature commercial legislation, import and export figures, government budgets, custom rates. So what they're really trying to do, like many people in this period, is render an abstract thing called the economy in national, visible, calculable terms. Okay, These are all inventions of this period these kinds of indices, these numeric representations. But what's interesting about these men is that the national was ambiguous for them. In fact, they were mourning the demise of the Ottoman Empire because they understood that it had brought to them oppressive economic conditions and that it had, uh, it had basically stopped and created unnatural borders of free trade, right? So they're upset they can't trade like they used to. Um, in a region that has what they call the common bonds of language, tradition, and culture. So what these, what these editors are doing, what these businessmen are doing, is shaping uh, 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 and presenting to their readers the benefits of capitalist investment in a vision of a pan-Arab capitalist utopia. But not all that was new was beautiful for these elites. The thrilling opportunities for spending both enticed and troubled them. 
And so you see here various figures emerging on the scene. The anti-hero, or what they would call the false intellectual, couldn't discern between needs and luxuries. And he basically spent with abandon and denied his family the fruits of his productivity. The heroes were men like Ahmad Helmi Basha, the founder of the Arab National Bank, Tahir Karaman, the tobacco industrialist. And these men, what made them heroes for these figures were that they embraced technology, they encouraged investment, and they above all avoided ostentation. Ostentation and the avoiding of ostentation was core to these projects. There are also two similarly contrasting women in this landscape, the Musrifa and the Hasifa. The Musrifa, and she's a character that um, spans time and space. She's the woman who spends all her husband's money without restraint. She will be familiar to many of us. The Hasifa, on the other hand, was calculated and frugal, but always fashionable. And she directed her endemic consumer tendency to domestic products to benefit the national economy. And here you see some very interesting gender constructions where women are believed to have an endemic, inborn, biological desire to spend money and consume. And the woman was at her most sublime, oh, this is Fuad Saba. I love this picture. This is actually a picture that his grandson sent me because he Googled himself and found my name and realized I was working on his uh, grandfather and got in touch with me and I can tell you more about that story. This has an important story too that I will tell you um, in a minute. But one of the Hasifas, the ideal Palestinian scientific homemakers, most important spaces was the home. And I studied an air, uh, a radio program um, called The New Arab Home, which a woman named Selwa Saeed ran, in which she gave 10 lessons on what it meant to be a good homemaker. Um, and I wound up despising this woman very deeply because she reminded me a great deal of my Myself. Um, she had clocks in every room, she had booklets where she wrote down everything she spent, she was obsessively clean, she had to have the right kind of food, the right kind of nutrition. Um, and what's interesting about domesticity, and this is something that I think not enough um, work is done on, is that the spatializing of the domestic space as something that you can calculate and measure so that you can reach progress is often parallel to the spatializing of a national economy that you can also calculate. The other important point about the home is that it comes into, into being as a site of moral containment. And so for Salwa Saeed, what, how she would advise the women who would listen to her, her listeners, she would say, look, there are all sorts of houses of entertainment now in Palestine. And while you may have a tendency to consume, your husband has a tendency for be, to be easily tempted. So if your house is clean and you're scientific and you know how to keep everything in its right space and you know how to manage the domestic uh, budget, you will keep your man at home, right? So this is, I mean, in its, in its kind of uh, more current iterations, I don't know about your grandmothers, but my, my grandmother always blamed uh, a husband who was not so faithful on, on his wife's inability to keep a good home. <clears throat> 
So the, the other important story about this is that uh, after my book came out, I was in uh, a meeting in, in uh, the United States and I ran into Salim in the lobby. And I said, Salim, my book is out, my book is out. And he opened it and he got to this picture and he said, where did you get this picture? I said, the Institute for Palestine Studies, I paid for it. And he said, this is my house. So <clears throat> Salim's house is in the book, but I didn't know it was his house at the time. Um, so the ideal economic subject, or what these elites called social man, and here I think it's very important because they understood this ideal economic subject as someone who, as a kind of, their relationship to commodities as a social relationship. Um, these figures, sort of, uh, the, this idea of the bonds of mutuality was it was all-encompassing, but it had many others. The, the worker, the peasant, the maid, all of these figures haunted the social man and his partner, the scientific housewife. So this is a very important, um, I think, a pattern that I saw in Palestine that, uh, that I've seen many others talk about in, in places like Zimbabwe and, and many other places, is that while proliferating commodities are an indication of arrival, they're also a deep source of threat because they threaten social hierarchy. So that in this rendition, in these renditions, the worker, the maid, and the peasant could never be the reader, the listener, or the consumer. And in fact, Selwa Said, as she was giving her lessons on the radio, would often tell her listener, be careful, your maid is probably listening, and you don't want her to have a sense of self. So these kinds of changes that people were celebrating as a new kind of arrival were also a deep source of threat. And this also comes to a certain point to, dis to, to, to get at how is it that people like Fuad Saba are funding the rebels. Um, and in part, they're funding them because they want to contain them, because they threaten their social hierarchy. How are we doing on time? Uh, 10, 10 to 12 minutes. 12 minutes? Okay. Let me try and go. Um, let me try and get through this second part of this story. So the, the second part of this story, I think, is... Um, which I won't have as much time to get at, is, uh, is, is to do with how do people define economy and how do people think about economy. In most of the renditions of calculating this abstraction called the economy in various kinds of scholarship, people focus on um, economic growth and the proliferation of objects. So just like the men of capital, we're seeing the proliferation of objects for sale as a new way, uh, uh, as a new uh, point in, in in capitalist kind of trajectories, so too have most scholars. I look at World War II to show that actually war and scarcity are just as important for these calculations as, as are um, experiences of growth, of economic growth. So the idea here is about basic needs. So in 1941, British colonial officials, and this is an image I found online of Palestinian um, soldiers in the British Army during World War II, and I couldn't trace it, so I couldn't use it. But in 1941, British officials established the Middle East Supply Center to implement, economic, uh, to implement new regulatory economic regimes. 
Mesk, as it was commonly referred to, basically was aiming to minimize demands on allied shipping, labor, and materials, while at the same time ensuring inhabitants from what uh, the, British, the British motto during World War II, which was freedom from want. And its geographic and numerical renditions have really left important legacies for the Middle East um, more broadly. Okay, I'm gonna skip this part. So what's interesting here is that basically what's happening in the Middle East Supply Center is that it's reshaping new notions of the Middle East. It includes 27 territories. It's a mixed bag of territories. Some places are independent, some places are colonies. It includes about 100 million people. By 1942, the Middle East Supply Center is the central buyer and supplier of all goods in this territory. And it's really making important links between the relationship between governing state officials and private capital. And I can talk a little bit more about that in the discussion. In Palestine, um, what actually this means on a national level is that the British colonial government in Palestine in implementing regimes institutes essentially an army of bureaucrats called the War Department. The largest department in the War Department was a department called the provision of essential needs. And people complained about this, Arabs and Jews, all the time. Because basically what the British were trying to do was get into the very details of daily life through various rationing regimes. Um, <clears throat> And in these rationing um, attempts and in the attempts to really control basic needs, because what are the British worried about? The British are worried about maintaining, um, making sure that the, that the war effort is able to ship materials and labor, but they're also worried about the specter of food uprisings, or what are commonly called bread riots, which are happening throughout the, throughout the Middle East in the beginning years of the war. And, and, the, and the British have the famine of World War I on their mind, the very deep and profound lessons of the famine in the Middle East, and they're really frightened about uh, uh, avoiding any such catastrophe. Um, and so what becomes very interesting is that what they're trying to do as they're attempting to ensure freedom from want is they're making very, very problematic and fraught, fraught links between basic needs, political containment, and development. <clears throat> and so to give you a sense of those links, I'm going to focus here on the calorie. The calorie was an invention that took place by a man named Wilbur Atwater, an American, in 1896. Now, just as the economy was being measured into smaller units in 20th century inventions like the cost of living, the GDP, the GNP, also food was now becoming a politically legible object because scientists were uh, inventing new, new, new indices like the calorie and new categories like fats, carbohydrates, and proteins. These people were called nutritionists. Most governments didn't like these people. Okay, they were out searching for someone to sponsor them. And the way that they found a sponsor was through American elites in the 1890s. And these elites, these economic elites, are very upset because their laborers are out protesting and striking all the time. I know it's hard to imagine the United States in this way, but in the 1890s, it was a very active time of labor organizing. And this is the moment, actually, that creates the index, the cost of living, because the economic 
economic elites and the nutritionists come together and the elites say to the uh, nutritionists, tell us how much food and caloric intake these people need so that we can keep them on the factory floor and off the streets. This is the historical moment when the cost of living comes into being. So we often think of these indices like the cost of living as if God created them, right? On the eighth day after he rested, right? But they're actually his deep historical constructs that we have to um, take seriously. So I'm going to skip the story about um, Harry, about Truman and Herbert Hoover and Keynes, although I love that part of the story, but I feel like Salim is, is getting antsy and maybe you guys are getting tired. Um, so, but I think what's really, really important to understand about this period and about um, the calorie and its relationship to development is that first, um, it was only the imperative of military needs that actually made nutrition uh, an alive uh, concept that governments would, were willing to take on. For, for, for all throughout the 20s and the 30s, the governments in London refused to see a link between poverty and malnutrition. Governments in the United States as well. Because that meant if, if there was a link between poverty and malnutrition, if we couldn't blame the poor for their hunger and their poverty, then we had to give them better wages, more welfare, and we had to regulate prices. The only time this changes is because of war. And when governments realize how well soldiers eat could affect the outcome of the war, this is when nutrition becomes an important science that is accepted. And what then happens is um, the calorie becomes a universal standard. The League of Nations says, okay, so that we can win the war, we're going to institute the calorie as a universal standard. But we're going to say about the calorie that uh, 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 Easterners, Middle Easterners and Far Easterners, need less fats carbohydrates and proteins because they are less active and they are vegetarian in mind. Okay, so from the very initial construction of the calorie that pretends to be universal, it was differentiated. So the British are armed with these differentiated um, concepts and they wind up making a big mess of many things, um, including uh, a very devastating famine in Bengal in 1942, which takes the lives of three million people and could have easily been avoided. They also institute very um, deep rationing regimes in Palestine, each of which fail. Um, profoundly, <laughs> but they actually affect daily life in very interesting ways, and I can talk about those details. But let me just tell you what these how these rationing regimes fail, and then I'll come to my conclusion. Yeah. Okay, so for one, um, when, when these colonial officials are coming to Palestine and trying to institute this calculating, this what they say creating a nutritional economy, they realize that it's very hard to measure anything because people in Palestine, the large majority of people in Palestine, rely on the Wukia, the Ratul, and the Cain. And the British are freaking out because these measurements 
differ across national borders and within national borders, right? So the British attempt to institute the metric system is one of the most controversial measures of the of World War II, uh, the World War II period. Counting people becomes very difficult too. Of course, the Jewish settlement enterprise has full numbers of their of 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 their people and their populations, but that suddenly the British realize that they have no comprehensive registry of Palestinians. So it's very hard to ration and regulate people when you don't know how many of them there are. Categorizing people was another difficulty. So for example, they began in the, in the beginning to subdivide Palestinians into Muslims and Christians. Then they realize, well, these people pretty much eat the same thing, so that doesn't work, right? Um, so all throughout, and then there was another figure that really troubled them, which was the Oriental Jew. What do we do with these people? These people eat like the Muslims and the Christians. They don't eat like... So here you see the ways in which these attempts to institute these regulatory regimes really lay bare what they would call, what they called at the time, the two racial expenditure groups of Arabs and Jews. The other thing that for me was very important in this period that I noticed was the way that the poor in Britain was discussed in the same way as the Oriental or the Native in Jerusalem. <coughs> Also, the much maligned figure of the homemaker was someone that transcended the divides of the colonizer and the colonized, the Arab and the Jew, the Oriental and the European. Indeed, if you were to take British nutritional surveys at their word, most nutritional health and budgetary problems in 20th century Palestine were a result of inadequate mothering and ignorant housekeeping. So the domestic manager in Palestine, just as in Britain, was the last to eat and the first to garner responsibility for managing hunger. Now, a large portion of the book is also about how the men of capital that I began my talk with reacted to these changes and these, basically what they understood, the erosion of their economic existence as the precursor for the erosion of their national existence. And what you see here is that their need, dreams of economic arrival rapidly fade they no longer have a fantasy of a pan-Arab economic capitalist utopia. They're now talking about an Arab economy versus a Jewish economy in this attenuated space of Palestine. And also their heroes change. For the first time, they start talking about the Bedouin and the Falah as the true Palestinian authentic consumer. At this point, it is too little, too late to actually affect any kind of solidarity. So let me conclude. Um, my first point, just to get back to what I um, was just saying, is that the resonance between government policies that sought to contain the poor in Britain and the colonized in Palestine were not accidental or anomalous. These, this resonance is structural. Secondly, um, in attending to scarcity and influence on formations of economy, I think this can help us complicate the sort of Foucauldian panopticon that has been so tempting because of how it explains everything, how it tries to explain everything. In point of fact, while the ascendance of new measurements in the 20th century um, really inspired bureaucrats in Germany to have dreams of omniscience, dreams of 
of being everywhere. British colonial officials in Palestine did not indulge these fantasies. Actually, war impelled them to count people and the goods that they consumed and produced. And as they did so, they realized the depths of two decades of apathetic rule. And, they, and this case also helps us understand that actually the two, th the two points of comparison are between the European Jews and the British colonial and the British colonial government. And if you make that comparison, at least in nutrition, you find that the European Jewish settlement project far outstripped that of the British in both capital and expertise. Um, so also, I think here thirdly is a point about development. We've come to understand development indices like growth, standard of living, and the calorie as universal. These indices promise objective means of erasing developmental difference. They promise us that we will be the same. But what happens if we shift our focus away from the process of development to think about how these categories themselves both constitute and enforce exclusion? And I think asking these questions allows us to bridge a divide between the colonial and the national, not just in Palestine or in the Arab world, but far beyond. Nationalists use development, and the formula of, develop of development was to affect and limited economic improvement so as to contain political upheaval. And while, while nationalists may have used this formula to, to, to oust the colonial uh, rule, they also used it to maintain their own social hierarchy after decolonization. Finally, I want to end with some questions on the exceptional and Palestine. So as I've said, the men and women that I've studied really complicate this flattened topography. I think it's, it's very important for us to understand that these people did not live in a world where they understood themselves to be shadows of the British colonial officials or the Zionist settler. They lived in a world where they did not understand Palestine as neither a political nor an intellectual backwater, but a core intersection in a regional configuration of, prog of profit and progress. So we have thought of Pan-Arabism primarily as a post-World War II project wedded to socialism. But in fact, Palestinians that I've studied alongside their Lib Lebanese, Syrian, Iraqi, Egyptian, Tunisian, and Hejazi colleagues shaped Anahada in terms of capital accumulation, free trade, and investment. So if we step outside of the exceptional Eurocentric binary, we can discern how these men and women's reality were part of a broader Arab liberal project. But it is time that we attend to this liberal age with with its utopic visions and its fashionable ideas with more scrutiny. It was not simply or coincidentally exclusionary. It was contingent on exclusion. The poor and the hungry were then, as they are today, either invisible or, or the personification of ugliness to be reformed as supplements to, not as actors in history. If we look to the foundational structure of Arab liberalism as contingent on the maintenance of this exclusion and inequality, we may stop, we may be able to stop eulogizing it just long enough to recognize that it never died. Thank you.
شكرا إلى شيرين سيقل على هذا العرض الممتع سأقوم قبل فتح ذلك حوار إلى الجمهور سأقوم بتعليقين وربما سؤالين وبعدين نفتحهم للنقاش فيك إذا تحبي يعني تقومي بالرد علي أو تستني نجمع مداخلات فيما بعد أوكي معالجة شيرين سيقلي لتبلور النخبة الاقتصادية في فلسطين فريد بالنوع لأن معظم الدراسات حول النخبة كانت دراسات سياسية وهناك دراسات أخرى حول اقتصاد فلسطين الانتدابية وهذه معالجة فريدة برأيي حول طبيعة النخبة الاقتصادية في فلسطين اللي ممكن نسميها تبلور ونمو البرجوازية أو الرأسمالية الفلسطينية في سنوات الثلاثينات والأربعينات استعملت المؤلفة وهون رح أشير لبعض المداخلات الموجودة في الكتاب بس مش في المحاضرة يعني واضح أنه في واحدة مستمدة من الثانية فربما يمكن الجمهور ما انتبهش لهذه الجانب في المداخلة هل نتكلم هنا عن نخب مدينية أم عن طبقة رأسمالية مهيمنة بمعنى شو هو القاسم المشترك بينها واضح أن آلية الاشتراك هو المادة الدسمة التي استعملتيها من مصادر الغرف التجارية والغرف التجارية كانت تشمل العديد من الشرائح المهنية التي لا يمكن استخدام كلمة رأسمالية إلا مجازا إلها يعني في تجار كتير ومنطقة تركان المجنين كان في كمان مزارعين أصحاب بيارات بيافا أصحاب بيارات باللد والرملة وفي تجار قسم كبير من تجار في القدس مثلا اللي ما كانوش مستثمرين أصحاب دكاكين كبيرة كلهم كانوا جزء من هذه ال الانتماءات المؤسساتية لغرف تجارية فشو هو المشترك بينهم هل بنقدر نحكي هون بالمعنى الماركسي أو الفيبري عن الطبقة الرأسمالية فلسطينية واللي عم نحكي عن شرائح مهيمنة مدينية في كل المدن الرئيسية خصوصا على ضوء الانقسام الذي جابهته خلال الثورة من مؤيد وضد كأنك بتقولي في بعض الأحيان إنه حزب الاستقلال كان هو الحزب المعبر عن طموحات هذه الشريعة بس مش متأكد إذا هذا اللي عم بتقوليه الجانب الآخر هو الإشارة التي تفضلت فيها حول الفكر النهضوي في نوع من الجبر برأيي في إقحام الفكر النهضوي النابع من الحركات الأدبية في القرن التاسع عشر والتجديد الإسلامي اللي مثله الأفغاني وعبده مع الفكر الليبرالي اللي تبنته هذه الشرائح 
اللي مثلها احمد حمي باشا واخرين في فلسطين شو هو المضمون الفكري او الايديولوجي النهضوي اللي بنقدر يعني نربط بين ايديولوجيه هذه الطبقه وبين افكار القرن التاسع عشر التي تسمى بعصر النهضه هل هي استمرار الا ولا انت عم تستعمل الكلمه مجازا النقطة الثانية اللي بدي أتعرض لها هي بنهاية دراستك في استعمال ظريف لمفهوم أدخله أدوارد سعيد على الأقل أنا فهمت منك إنه من أدوارد سعيد The Discipline of Detail اللي مش عارف كيف أترجمه يمكن مفهوم الانضباط في التفاصيل اللي عم تتكلم عنه المؤلفة هون هو استبطان الشرائح المستثمرة في التراث الرأسمالي الأوروبي لنوع من الانضباط في العمل اللي حكى عنه ماكس فيبر وآخرين بالنسبة لبروز الرأسمالية وعدم استبطانه في العالم العربي في الصين تحديدا فهون في مفارقة يعني من ناحية كانوا يعني يشتغلوا على السبهلة لإنجاز التعبير لم يستطيعوا مجابهة المشروع الصهيوني عن طريق أخلاقيات جرمانية إنجاز التعبير في استبطان الانضباط العملي في آلية الاستثمار ومن ناحية ثانية بترفضي أنه يكون تقويد المشروع الاقتصادي الفلسطيني نابع من قصور ذاتي اللي هو تعبير أدوارد سعيد عن discipline of detail يعني غياب discipline of detail فهون في عنا مؤثرات وهيكلية اللي هي المشروع الصهيوني وتبني الانتداب البريطاني للمشروع الصهيوني ففي مفارقة يمكن بتقدر تفسريها انه من ناحية هم كانوا مقفلين يعني من ناحية انضباط العمل لكن من ناحية ثانية في ظروف خارج عن ارادتهم وبتقولي في محل انه بدناش يعني نلقي كل تبعات الفشل في الاستثمار الاقتصادي على الصهيونيه والاستعمار لانه في قصور ذاتي بس مش واضح العلاقه بين هذول التنتين يمكن تقدر توضحيها اخيرا يعني تعليق بسيط عن الحاضر اللي بتنهي في كلمتك وفي اشاره فيه بالكتاب النخبه الفلسطينيه الرأسمالية تحولت بعد النكبة إلى طبقة رأسمالية عربية في قطاع البنوك والتأمين وخصوصا في تعهدات البناء والأسماء عديدة صباق قطان مصري عقاد مياسي وآخرين هذه الطبقة يبدو أنها نجحت بشكل مذهل في العالم العربي فيما فشلت فيه بفلسطين لعدة أسباب لكن السؤال شو هو فلسطيني فيها يعني غير عن أصولها وجذورها السلالية هل هي طبقة رأسمالية فلسطينية ولا هي تحولت ديموغرافيا إلى كونها transnational investing class لكن بالصدفة إنها جاءت من مش بالصدفة طبعا لكن جاءت من جذور عربية هل أصبحت طبقة مستثمرة عربية شو في فلسطيني في هذه الطبقة اللي تحولت إلى العالم العربي؟ 
شكرا شكرا على العرض الممتع جدا بتحبي نفتح الباب نقاش الجمهور ولا اه استاذ سميح تفضل معلش بس نوصل لك الميكروفون واذا ممكن تعرف نفسك سميح حمود جامع بيزيد الموضوع العلاقة بالحركة الصهيونية أعتقد موضوع مهم بس ما سمعت عنه بالتفاصيل يعني الموضوع إنه رؤية الاقتصاد الفلسطيني كاقتصاد مستقل عن الاقتصاد الصهيوني وعدم مقارنته نقطة جيدة ولكن كان هناك تورط في الرأسمالية الفلسطينية بالاستثمار مع الحركة الصهيونية يعني مثلا من الأشخاص اللي ذكرتيهم طاهر قرمان كان له شركاء يهود وكان يتعاون مع الاقتصاديين اليهود وهدد بالقتل يعني كان معروف علاقاته بالصهاينه في هذه الفتره وكثير من الراسماليين الفلسطينيين اصلا بدات رؤوس اموالهم عن طريق بيع الاراضي لليهود يعني راس المال الذي استثمر في الصناعه واستثمر في الاقتصاد هو عمليا جزء منه وقسم منه ما بقدرش اقول قديش ولكن قسم مهم منه كان نتيجة لبيع الأراضي فكثير من البيارات التي أنشئت في الساحل الفلسطيني أنشأها أصحابها من خلال بيع قسم من الأرض للحركة الصهيونية ومن ثم الاستثمار فبعتقد هذه العلاقة يعني يجب أن تدرس ويجب أن تكون موضع فحص يعني لا يمكن الفصل بين النمو الاقتصادي الفلسطيني وبين هذا الجانب من التاريخ أستاذ سام بحوط تفضل Thank you. Dr. Shreen, I think your presentation and topic of study is fascinating. I feel you were just getting started. <laughs> I have one comment and two quick questions. The comment is, I don't know if you're familiar with a Harvard graduate. She did her PhD in the banking sector in Palestine during the same period of time, Sadamati. Yeah. Because that would maybe lead you to some of the activities that some of these people you're talking about from a transactional perspective did, and that may lead you to more insight. Two quick questions. One is you said the Palestinians, as, as Palestine was failing, uh, that the Palestinian capital class uh, ran to safeguard their investments. How? Where? Uh, and the other question, you started to touch on it. Uh, if you can talk a little bit about the uh, collaboration between state officials and that, those men of capital. Is there any information of how, I mean, how they were privileged Was it privileged through the Ottoman? Was it privileged through the British? Or was it a, a national privilege that they were getting? Shukran, Dr. Asiqa, because I really enjoyed the presentation. أنا السؤال اللي بدي أسأله اليوم إذا أخذنا في عين الاعتبار إنه في علاقة ما بين أو ما في علاقة مفاهيمية وأيضا مبدئية في ما بين الرأسمالية والوطنية واستمعنا لمحاضرتك قديش تقدر تعطينا دروس مستفادة للوضع القائم اليوم لأنه اليوم في أسئلة مفروض تنسأل في الوط... يعني إحنا شفنا مؤتمر ماس قبل أربع أيام والرسالة بتقول 
خلينا نشتغل بقد يعني من ضمن الموجود وفي علاقه يعني عضويه ما بين الراسماليه الفلسطينيه والاحتلال الاسرائيلي شو الدروس اللي بنقدر نستفيدها اليوم شكرا بناخذ تعليق اخر من الاستاذ عبد الجواد بعدين بنعمل دوره ثانيه مش منيح اوكي Why those men of capital, though they had followed a modern and progressive way of political economy, failed to develop a Palestinian political leadership to confront Zionists in Europe? Okay. I think we can. Yeah, yeah. Okay, تفضل 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 لا لا تفضل go ahead thank you thank you I may not last to the second round بس المايك يعني خليني أقول إنه استمتعت استمتاع شديد بالمحاضرة وصل الاقتصاد ونظرية تاريخ الاقتصاد مع تطورات تاريخية معينة في الحقيقة خليط ممتع جدا من التاريخ أو صنع التاريخ كتابة التاريخ وكتابة الاقتصاد في نفس الوقت فهذا جميل والحقيقة بيستكتب يعني منظور جديد ليس جديد بالنسبة لي ولكنه يعني ممتع جدا للأسف يعني شفت العنوان عنوان محاضر رجال اقتصاد فلسطينيين أو الأخرين لم أرى كثير إنه ما سمعته بتعلق كثير بموضوع الموضوع اللي على كل حال وقع خلاص ممكن يعني كنت مثلا اتصور انه راح تحكي عن رجال اقتصاد فلسطينيين اثروا بتاريخ الاقتصاد الفلسطيني او اثروا فيما بعد بتاريخ الاقتصاد الدول العربيه والحقيقه بس بديش اطول كثير بدي أختم شوي إنه I was little concerned إنه كان الحوار قد يكون بس بينك وبين المقدمة لأنه يبدو إنه درس الكتاب دراسي عميقة جدا وإحنا الحضور بيبرلت ينتص بانتج إنه ما قرينا الكتاب بقدر ولكن أحي أحي المقدم على دراسته العميقة لكتبه وطاو أسئلة يعني من خلال دراسته وأسئلة عميقة جدا لن يتسنى ولا يتسنى لنا نحن الجمهور أن نتبقى بس كلمة أخيرة I would very much be interested in your take on a recent most recent book which was a best seller on the role of Yusuf Baydas and something which you touched upon, the role of Palestinian 
Palestinian well, businessmen and bankers in developing uh, Lebanon. Uh, that, uh, of course, I'm sure that you have uh, uh, read that book, or at least are familiar with it, which is Imbaratoriyat Yusuf Baydas and the interplay of uh, political, economic, confessional factors in the demise of this, uh, uh, this empire. Uh, if you if you promise that uh, uh, you will comment on this, uh, I can call my wife and tell her I uh, can come at the at the time we agreed to. Thank you. The nations are judged. Okay. Um, thank you. يعني رح أجاوب بالإنجليزي لأنه رح يأخذني كتير أطول إذا حكيت بالعربي للأسف. Um, to what extent Salim was it urban? To what extent was it rural? Rural? And what is the difference? And is there one class in the Viberian sense? No, I don't think. I don't think there is. And in many ways, I think. Um, is there feedback? ولا feed? Okay. Um, I don't think there is one class in the Viberian sense, and I think in the beginning, in the in the in the first portion of the book, which is focused on uh, the the intellectual projects of the men that I'm talking about, I think it makes more sense there to talk about the men of capital as they describe themselves and their intellectual ideas around economic history. In the, later, in the later archives of the Chambers of Commerce, I think the story becomes much more ambiguous and much more, um, much more dynamic and, and constantly changing. And I wouldn't rush to fit everyone into one class. I guess what I'm trying to do is shed light on changes that I think we haven't paid attention to that were intellectual and were attempting to begin a kind of coherent class project. At the same time that there were these small, medium, and large ventures that were taking place and coming together in the chambers of commerce. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. um, how are they in Nahadawi and in what sense is there a link between what they're doing and the earlier intellectual projects? And here I was very inspired by the work of Ilham Khuri Maqdisi about socialists um, in, before 1917. And she is basically uh, making an argument around a pre or not necessarily a kind of anti-national moment just before 1917. And there she finds that Amina Rehani and Muhammad Abdul are exchanging articles with one another in this long correspondence. And for me, this was very inspiring because they're so different in the way that they self-define. One is a socialist, the other is a kind of Islamic modernist, and they're reading each other's drafts in a project that is very much um, 
invested in the promises of an Arab past that can give us a model for the Arab present that were we to embrace the right kind of technology at the same time that we hold on to a cultural essence, then we're able to move forward. And in fact, Amin al-Rihani is actually writing in Iqtisadiyat during the 1930s. Um, and so I think even, and there's a place where I talk about a kind of Nahda narrative structure that they are very engaged in, in which they celebrate um, the legacies, the rich legacies of the past. They use it and they link it to um, the, the, the flaws of the present, and then they bring it together to envision this progress, this this project. And I think if you, and I think in my readings of the the at least the logic of the Nahdawi projects, whether it's Abdu or many of the other literary analysis, drawing on people like Samasanim and Elliot Cole and others, you see that not only are they engaging the actual figures themselves and inviting them to write for them, but they're also using the same kinds of techniques and, and narrative structures. Um, Ideologi the ideological question, I think, is a larger one that I, I would want to hear more from you about your thoughts. But I think that my attempt here is to say, let's take economic thinking seriously as part of our intellectual history. Let's engage it as part of a broader intellectual project of how we think about our past, our present, and our future. That's really the main kind of attempt there. The point about the discipline of detail that I was trying to make in conversation with Edward Said, um, there was a recent book written by an Israeli scholar in which um, the, the scholar makes the argument that because the Arabs didn't have um, any means of calculating their own economy. They couldn't compete with um, the intensive politics of calculation of the European Jewish settlers. And then he concludes that then the, that the Arab economy was then just a shadow of the Jewish economy. And what I'm trying to suggest in response to, to, to Said is two things. One is I actually don't think that the Zionist project or the British colonial project, and I don't think colonialism more broadly, and this is what I was trying to say about the panopticon, it's tempting for us to think of it as clear and planned and having a master plan that they knew what they were going to do from the very first minute, and then they were just implementing it along the way. But actually, they didn't. And it was messy, and it was contingent, and it was ugly and inefficient, and it failed more than it did anything else. It wasn't just the Palestinians who were failing. It's harder to see that now from the perspective that we're in. So that was one point. The other point I was trying to make about the discipline of detail is that these men and women, but more so men, that I study very much knew and understood the need for calculation, the importance of the politics of calculation, the importance of state institutions. Why, did they, why do we need bureaucracy? They were invested in bureaucracy. And in that sense, I think that was one point Said missed, right? Um, so that's the argument I'm trying to make. In terms of did they fail because of their own failures, or were they failing because of um, <laughs> um, did they fail because of their 
شو شو حكت؟ خلاص؟ حلو كثير ف did they fail because of their own failures or did they fail because of the Zionists? It depends on how you define their failure. And I think in some ways, I think they failed in, a, in the national project, absolutely they failed. But in being able to go on and do the kind of transnational, um, um, transnational interventions that you then asked about, I think they succeed. So for me, I guess I'm not so concerned with their failure or success. I'm trying to really think about what is it that they tell us about our present in terms of intellectual thinking, in terms of class exclusion, in terms of the deep ways that we have a hatred for the poor. Um, this is, and we here, I mean, I'm talking about myself as a Palestinian or as an Arab or what have you. And in this sense, I guess, in terms of the present, again, I'm, I think that these actors, people like Masri and, um, you know, earlier Sabah and so on, I'm not so invested in whether or not they're Palestinian or Arab. I think they're the 1%. And the 1% is some, a, a group of people, what I'm trying to say in this project is, you know, maybe it's time we try and take the 1% a little bit more seriously, and maybe it's time that we engage what they actually had in terms of intellectual projects so that we can critique and build and move forward. And in, in this sense, in terms of your question about the present and the way, you know, one of the reasons one of the things that I think is important uh, for me about this project is that I get, I get so frustrated with the engagement of Fayyadism and the narration of Palestinian economic history as beginning in 1993. And if you're lucky in 1967, and if you're really lucky in 1948, everything else is like dinosaur or something, right? And this is, and I'm not saying any of this because I want to celebrate these people. I want to critique them. I'm not celebrating them, Ustaz Samih, in response to your question about, well, what about their engagements with the Zionist economy? And you're absolutely right. Karaman was you could say a collaborator, right? Karaman was, there were other people in the book that I studied like Rashid al-Hajj Ibrahim who wasn't, who, uh, who, who was very affiliated with and very close to Azzedine al-Qassam, who was, they were much more diverse than we think that they were. Um, I guess I would say in part in response to your question that I would suggest that actually the story of Palestinian treachery, quote unquote, I, although I think it's more complicated than that, I think it's time we, I'm not suggesting that's how you formulated it. I'm saying, you know, people like Kenneth Stein and um, what's his name, good Arab, bad Arab? Hillel Cohen. You know, there's an entire industry of scholarship that is devoted to illustrating the extent to which Palestinians brought about their own demise through their collaboration. And I'm not suggesting that we can, that we should dismiss that factor, and I think we have to engage it. But I think to come to the conclusion that the only way to understand Palestinian capital is through that lens would also be to erase a very important part of our history. Um, and, and yes, there were land sales. There were also efforts by people like Fuad Saba to, um, 
to, to actually buy back land. Okay, and Fuad Saba and others of the people that I've studied were actually very active in the, in, the, in the projects to buy back land. Okay, what's more interesting to me less than that, what's more interesting to me is how they're talking about private property. Private property to them is something sacred. And this is important. Right? This isn't just some kind of intervention or invention that comes into Palestine on the, on the hands of the, of the Zionists. No, there are questions of private property, questions of dispossession that make these people part of a 1% that would become a global transnational class that I think it's time to critique and take seriously. Um, um, Mr. Bahur, thank you so much for your questions. I do know Shremati's work quite closely and I, and I like it very much. And actually, I meant to do this talk around something very strange that happened to me six months that after my book came out, which is I accidentally came across a family archive um, in my aunt's house in Los Angeles, in which my great-grandfather was narrating my book back to me. It's the strangest thing. And some of the files are actually very important to Srimati's project, which is what happens to the banks um, after 48, which gets to your first question. Um, the people that I've studied and what happens to them, they're basically, Saba, for example, and this is how I start the book, he's basically trying, so many of these uh, initiatives and enterprises have branches and headquarters all over the Arab world. Amman, Baghdad, Beirut, Damascus. And what they, as they are seeing beginning in 1947, as they begin, they're seeing the beginning of the end, they're actually moving capital, and headquarters and staff into these different branches. Um, so, and, and there are several studies, I think, that are coming out about that. The question of state officials and privilege. There, um, okay, so one of the things that I'm trying to do in this work is to get away from a simplistic understanding that all of the people who are invested in profit accumulation, we can easily dismiss them as what used to be called the comprador class. That is the class that is just sort of the handmaidens of the colonial state. And um, another thing that people have said particularly about the Ottoman period is that you know another way to sort of dismiss these people is to say that they're all Christian. And so then they actually um, were able to um, have the privileges of the capitulations and thus they were much better able to make money right, than, than others. And I think that actually isn't accurate for the group of people that I study if you look more closely at it. Um, their relationship, I think they are, you know, in their, in their uh, correspondence with British state officials, they're used to a sort of gentlemanly agreement in a way. They're used to understanding themselves as equals to the British colonial officials. They don't approach them as inferiors. Um, but they're playing many games all at once. And they say, they use a different language in their annual English um, pamphlets than they do in their Arabic pamphlets. And they court the state to the extent that they think it's a temporary enabler. But they understand that it isn't. So they are playing the kinds of instrumental games that are common, I think, to, um, um, 
to, to many colonial struggles, and I think that are actually a, a, you know different from the ones that we see today. Much more sort of they at least understood themselves as having much more leverage. Um, and when they begin seeing that they don't have leverage, then then their discourse changes. Um, capitalism and nationalism. That is a really huge question. I don't. I would. We should do a conference on that. I, I think it's a really important question, and I think that it's one that we don't ask. And I think the only question I would add to your fantastic question is the question of the Arab right. For me, you know, having lived in Egypt for five years and experienced the revolution, which was a, a great blessing to me that I had that experience. One of the things that I walked away with was, why is it that we don't talk about an Arab right? How, where is the Arab right? Why are we always only talking about the Arab left and its problems and its bankruptcy and it being asleep and it being awakened and its Nahda and so on? And I think questions about the Arab right, both ideologically and in terms of their um, interests, their capital interests is really core to our present. And I think uh, the Arab right, the, an idea, opening up the idea of the Arab right would help us to think about profit making um, and, to, and to think about sort of the desperate situation that we're in now, where um, un unfortunately Palestine starts looking as if it is more calm and stable than most places in the region. Um, so this is, I think, a very deep question. <laughs> Why did they fail um, to create a political leadership? Um, I don't think that they believed, the, at least the guys I study, I don't think they believed that it was there on them to, to, to create a political leadership. I think they saw their flaws, the flaws of the formal leadership. I think some of them wanted to, some of them were istiqlalists, um, like Rashid al-Hajj Ibrahim, but even those people were very, like Rashid al-Hajj Ibrahim was very careful not to alienate Hajj Amin Husseini ever. And, and I think they understood, and I think they, they understood themselves as separate from the political class. They wanted to be separate from the political class. They wanted to do something different. And, and I think their failure is because they could, I think their main failure is that they understood what they called the rough classes as less than them. I think that's their main failure, that they couldn't, even think about the majority of Palestinians, the, the workers, the fellahin, their own mates, they couldn't think of themselves on par with these people. And that the revolt for them was a, was a nationalist struggle, but it was also challenging because it was a social struggle, a social struggle that had the, the potential of shaking their own superiority. And I think that's their failure, that's their, that's not their failure, that's what characterizes them from the, from, the, from the inception. Do you see what I mean? So for me, it's less about the leadership and more about maybe they could have, had they had a different vision, could have been the sort of mediators that they claim to be in a different way, but, but their very project excluded that possibility. Um, in terms of the characters and the, and the projects themselves, um, 
I tried a little bit to talk about some of the characters, um, but you're right, I was mostly focusing on ideas and, and concepts. Um, I think um, Baidas is a really, I mean, I think is a very important figure, and um, you know, I think the whole question of what happens after 1948 and what happens in the 1950s in Lebanon and in in the Gulf and and all of these experiences is is a, is a book that's I really hope someone writes because it's so 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 important and works like you've um, you've talked about in terms of Vedas are really core to our understanding of of that history. Thank you. Do we have more interventions from the floor? Because I think the interpreters are about to collapse. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thank you very much. Thank you, Shireen, and uh, thank you for your good listening. And I hope you'll have a chance to uh, look at her, her excellent uh, work on the subject, Men of Capital, uh, published by Stanford University Press. Is it available, the book? It, I think you can get it from the Educational Bookstore yes, they have some in, in Jerusalem. Although not very much. Yeah. Uh, shukran jazeelan wa ila liqa. Shukran. Bye. Thank you.